Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. The biggest correlation between health and money was not actually income, though that was important. It was debt. And it was whether you were in personal debt. Now, if you think about that, um, the anxiety that comes with that, the inability to do things and all the rest of it, there's a logic to that, isn't there? That you can understand that. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor, I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. My guest today used to run the NHS. Lord Nigel Crisp was Chief Executive of the English NHS and Permanent Secretary of the UK Department of Health from 2000 to 2006. He now works and writes mainly on global health with a focus on Africa. And Lord Crisp is a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and Honorary Professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and a Foreign Associate of the US National Academy of Medicine. He was also formerly a distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health and Regents Lecturer at Berkeley. Now, his current focus is on creating health and promoting the causes of health. Having worked in the NHS for over 20 years, the last 10 have been spent in Africa and India, which has led him to think differently about health and well-being and healthcare systems and public services more generally. Nigel believes organizations must all play their part in building a society and environment where communities and individuals can thrive and flourish. And this goes far beyond the reach of the NHS and government and everyone has a role to play. We have a fascinating conversation about developing the healthcare workforce, why a salutogenic approach to health is key 
even what we can learn from developing nations with far less budget on how they encourage health to flourish within their communities. And we also discuss the ideas of how interconnected and interdependent we are in health globally, just as we are in every other aspect of our lives. And this is a concept really brought to life with the most recent pandemic, but something that Lord Nigel has been writing about and talking about for many years. His latest book, Turning the World Upside Down, again, is about global health in a time of pandemics, climate change and political turmoil, which is a fascinating read and one that I really hope policymakers will read and put into action. Remember, you can also watch the podcast now on YouTube. Just head to the YouTube channel, thedoctorskitchen.com, subscribe whilst you're there, and you'll be able to see all the podcasts uh, in video format as well as audio format. The video format's pretty good. Uh, go check it out. Let me know what you think. Leave a comment and I will try and answer some of the questions if you leave them under the comments there as well. Uh, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free as well with a 14-day free trial. Get access to all of our recipes tailored to health goals. Android users, I'm working on it very, very hard. And also check out the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter. Every week I send you a recipe that I've personally made. Uh, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch that will help you have a more mindful, healthier week. On to the podcast. Nigel, thanks so much for taking time this morning. I know you're going to be on stage uh, in literally minutes. Um, let's start with... Uh, your, your role, you're a co-chair of the All-Parliamentary Group on Global Health. What does that mean exactly? Well, what it is, is it's a group of peers and MPs who are interested in global health. And therefore, we run a number of meetings in Parliament. We're trying to promote the ideas about global health and making people, helping people to think about the world yeah. when they're thinking about health. Because the UK isn't isolated. I mean, we know that now. Yeah. Three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, we perhaps didn't understand that as much. But come a pandemic, and of course we all understand how joined up we are. Not just joined up in the way that diseases will travel around the world, but actually think about PPE and the competition for ventilators and, and, and all the rest of it. And then the sort of issues of access to vaccines and, uh, uh, and of course, COVID revealed to us those great inequalities, didn't it? Inequalities in our own country, mm -hmm. but also inequalities around the world. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of broad set of focus that, that we in that group are interested in. What, what, where did your personal interest come to this? Because it, it's very topical now, but I imagine you know, a few decades ago, it perhaps wasn't as... Well, interesting, very interesting. When I was running the NHS, which was at the beginning of this century, which yeah. feels like a long time ago, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I now normally say I'm now in recovery. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I met a, a lot of senior doctors, particularly doctors, but also nurses who'd done a week or two in Africa or something like that. And they came back buzzing. They remembered why they were a doctor. You know, I remember one particular radiologist who was, she was dealing with a sick child and, you know, radiologists in a British hospital, they have their role, but it's not quite like that. And, and she had to go back to first principles and she remembered the passion because, you know, one of the things I notice about doctors is you have that passion when you come into medicine. Sometimes the system knocks it a bit out of you. Yeah, yeah. But actually I find when I'm, uh, and what I found was that I was talking to these people, the passion came back. That was great for the NHS. And then I began to realize how much we could learn from that sort of experience, the, the growth of people, but actually from countries themselves. Yeah, you're gonna, I, I'm assuming you've already spoken to a few people, but I feel that you're gonna get the sense that a lot of medics currently in the system 
have lost or are losing that passion that they started the clinical career with. Yeah. And that's something that's happened to me in my relatively short clinical career of almost 15 years. You know, as I got ingrained and entrenched into the system, I, I've sort of lost my, uh, the, the, the real spark that led me into the profession in the first place. What, what do you think we can do today to sort of reinvigorate yeah, I, I, I do absolutely recognise that. Um, and, and actually, I fell into the NHS when in my mid-30s, so I joined you know, relatively late. And one of the first things a consultant uh, orthopod said to me, mm. and this is, this is in the 90s, um, was, um, Nigel, today is the 25th anniversary of my Wednesday afternoon clinic. Well, he looked a bit depressed. Yeah. That guy, I last saw him uh, three years ago, and he was medical director of a... Uh, of a charity hospital in Lusaka in 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 in, uh, in Zambia. Really. Um, and and you know what you notice is is that doc doctors in their careers tend to sort of pick up some stuff that yeah. yeah and and but it is important to reignite that passion. But then people get passion in different ways. But I mean some of it actually is from teaching. You mm. know teaching and research and so on. So I think we what we desperately mustn't do is make you guys into technicians. Mm. And I think some of you feel, and probably rightly, that you're on a treadmill, yeah. you know, that actually there's protocols telling you what to do, there's patients and there's, there's, you know, targets and there's all this kind of stuff. So why did I get a medical training? Why am I a professional mm. as opposed to being a, te a technician? Mm. And I think that's really serious. And one of the things we're doing in the April Party Parliamentary Group um, is we're looking at the future role of health workers, um, looking 20 years ahead. What, what's today's 25-year-olds going to be doing when they're yes. 45? And our argument out of all of that is, I better not give it all away today. <laughs> I, uh, but but actually, we, we, we need a wider set of education for people. And we need to recognize that you've got a role as a clinician, but also as an agent of change. Mm. That actually, if you're a single-handed, and this take me back globally, if you're a single-handed consultant psychiatrist in Bihar, yeah. state in India, state in North India, well, you can see 20 patients a day or 30 patients a day or 50 patients a day, but actually you're not really going to make an impact on mental health in, in Bihar unless you're also working with the temple, mm. you know, working with the mosque, if it's also a mosque in the, in, in the area, working with the civil society organisations, working with other people, creating the conditions for people to handle mental health. Mm. Um, so actually our argument is that, you know, if we're really going to see you as the professionals you are, not technicians, we need you to be. The, the agents of change and curators of knowledge. Yeah. Because knowledge is now contested, isn't it? But who do I go to if I want to understand how I can find the latest stuff on health or whatever? Somebody like you, yeah. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, th I think increasingly people are taking uh, the initiative to look uh, for other sources of information about their health whilst they wait to see someone like myself in, in clinic. There's obviously that, that issue as well. I just wanted to, to dive a little bit deeper in this, into this concept of being an agent for change yeah. and the educational piece. What, how do we encourage the young clinicians or even the, the clinicians in the middle of their career to become those agents of change? Where, where, where do we look for? for well, lots of, lots of things. I mean, there's amongst those are role models and, and you've seen it in your life, people who have actually sorted stuff out. Mm. Um, and I, I, I meet a lot of younger GPs actually, who are not only seeing themselves as, um, as clinicians, of course, but but also growing there's a there's a, a group doing growing health in Hawley, mm -hmm. which is not from you know linking in with the organizations because one of the other big things i'm really interested in is the causes of health 
not the causes of disease, the causes of health, creating health, salutogenesis, not pathogenesis, you know? Um, And I define that as being about creating conditions for people to be healthy and then helping them to be so. Uh, And that, you know, it's, it's what your parents did. What a good teacher does. It's what a good school does. They help you to become a, a robust, confident, competent doctor in your case, mm. human being. Mm. You know, mm. um, and and we need to get into all of that as well as into the pathogenesis, as mm. it were. You know, because we certainly need the, the the clinical aspects. Nothing I'm saying takes any of that away. But it's a two-handed thing. We need creating health, which is not just prevention of disease. Mm. It's actually creating human flourishing. Yeah. Great African saying, in fact, my book before, the one we may be about to talk about, yeah, yeah. Um, it was called Health is Made at Home, Hospitals are for Repairs. Right. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's uh, brilliant. A, that's a the guy, wonderful guy called François Maswa, Professor François Maswa, who ran the Ugandan Health Service, around about the same time as I was running the English one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and he used to use that as his slogan, you know, and he was, you know, and, and his model was a traditional African village where everyone knew everybody else and, you know, the, you know, children played with each other, you were part of a society, there were relations, there were belonging. Yeah. All those sort of things that help create, um, you know, a, a more fulfilled human being. Absolutely. That, the, the, the concept of salutogenesis certainly resonates really well with me because I, I feel Certainly when I was at medical school, there was an, uh, yeah. an overt emphasis on pathogenesis. And it's very important, don't get me wrong, you know, the knowledge around pathology, the knowledge around diagnoses, all those different aspects of what people typically think of when they think of as the doctor, the, the yeah. clinician, the investigator. That's very important, but, but creating the grounds or the environment such that health can flourish in and of itself, mm-hmm. I think that's sort of lost at the moment. And it's conferences like where we are today that are really bringing this, this, this conference back. is important. This conference is important. Let me just have a touch on professional education mm-hmm. because um, there's a, I was part of a group which 10 years ago, led by Uncle Julio Frank, who was a Mexican Minister of Health um, and then Dean at Harvard. Dean of School of Public Health from Harvard, and a man called Lincoln Chen, who was president of the uh, China Medical Board, mm-hmm. uh, and then a group of us, looking at professional education 100 years after it was radicalized by Flexner. You may or may not know your history on this, but it, no. the Flexner <laughs> report, Abraham, um, uh, Flexner in, in, in 1910, introduced science into medicine. Right, okay. Kind of important. Okay, yeah, yeah. Germ yeah, yeah. theory, yeah. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and it really changed medical education. So we were looking at it 100 years later. And they came up, and it was really them, not me, came up with this. There's three stages to medical education, or professional education, actually. We were talking about professional education, not just medical. Um, there's the informative stage. This is where you become a specialist, where you understand that there are 52 bones in the foot and you know how they all work, et cetera, you know, and, and, the, and the pathogenesis, if you like, the specialist bit. The second bit is the formative bit, where you add to that your, your behavior and your values and, and how you handle patients and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the third bit, which is the transformative bit, which is when you become a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and going through those three stages and professional education needs to maybe handle those three stages differently. In fact, I think COVID has shown us that that first stage can be handled quite well online. Mm, you know, yeah. the, 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 the taking in of the, of the science and the understanding. The second bit, of course, the formative bit and the behavior and so on, you need to learn with other people in the debate. But the transformative bit, you need to learn on the job, learning by doing. And therefore it's about role models, it's about 
um, getting traction um, with these ideas. Um, so we see that professional education needs to change really quite radically to allow people to do that and to, and to, and to bring into it all the social determinants of health, all, all the health is made at home bits, you know, yeah. education, housing, all these sort of stuff, mm -hmm. so that you as professionals can be multi-competent yeah. and not just not just, not it's, it's a big just. Yeah. And let me undervalue, you know, should I get cancer? <laughs> you know, I want the best specialist in the world. Absolutely. Of course I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't think I have cancer, if you see what I mean. You know, but the, there's a big part of health that's not about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really agree with that. I mean, um, the evoke focus, I think there's an underlying focus on specialism within the the medical community of that sort of the end goal but having those two extra pieces particularly the leadership piece is really interesting i, I want to turn to the concepts in your first and, and most recent book now turning the world upside down again that's the second book and this whole concept about what uh, more affluent countries can learn from developing nations so let's let's talk a bit about it because you mentioned uh, the, the the temple and the mosque in Bihar as the sources of where you spread uh, the the sort of health messages to to create a healthier community. What what are the concepts uh, underlying your? Well, let, 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 let me let me give you two examples, yeah. and 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 they're mostly about people. I mean, there's some technical stuff, and we could talk about that. Um, but but actually, they're mostly about people. And, and let me the, the the theory here is that. The experience I've had is that we can learn an awful lot from people who are just as smart as we are, don't have our resources, but they also don't have our baggage of history and of vested interests. So actually, in some ways, they can be freer to think. Now, they've got worse health problems than we have, let's be, let's be clear. It's not, not a romantic notion. But let me give you two examples. One is Bangladesh. I'm going to stick in Southeast Asia for the yes, moment. Yeah. Um, uh, and an organization called BRAC, which was actually founded not as a health organization. It was founded where, when, uh, when uh, Bangladesh split from what feast to be East Pakistan. Um, uh, and it uh, was founded for the ultra poor to give them support but it now provides a lot of the health services in the country. And its starting point is to empower the women. So it actually runs empowerment classes for women in the villages. As a result of that, more of them are then actually doing some of the things you need to do with your baby. Um, they managed to make child mortality crash by, because a lot of children still in parts of the world die because they've had diarrhea and their mothers don't yeah. know how to rehydrate them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, actually at the Brack University, they, they invented, the, they patented the, the, the salts that you use. Um, so they get into health and then they realize, of course, what well, health is connected to everything else. So these women need an income. So they set up a microfinance bank, which would give them some money only to women, by the way. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about that yeah, if, yeah. If, you, if you want, <laughs> but only to women. Um, and then they realized, well, we better set up some shops, hadn't we? To sell the produce or, or whatever. And actually they're schools, yeah. And 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 so and, and what they've done is they they've creating the the sort of they're creating good society, if you like. They're creating the bits that you need to move from absolute poverty and destitution mm -hmm. into self-realization to an extent, to some level of fulfillment. And these things are connected. Yet we separate schools over here, hospitals right over there. Uh, and employment over here, as it were. And, and we need to think about how we can bring some of that together. Um, and that, again, is what a lot of the current thinking, I think, in the UK is coming from. But let me give you a practical example from the other side of the world of something that's happening here in the borough of Westminster. Um, 
both in Brazil and in Africa, they have what are called community health workers, which and lady lady health workers in Pakistan and ashes they're called in in India. Um, and essentially, this is local women who know how to do twenty things. You know, ten curative and ten preventative or whatever. Um, well, a GP, a UK GP who worked as a GP in Brazil um, and is now at Imperial College as a lecturer brought over the concept and persuaded the primary care group in, in um, Westminster to use it. And as of the autumn, there were four um, community health workers working in Westminster, being mentored by the Brazilian <laughs> community health workers. <laughs> and what's really interesting about this, these groups is most health workers react. We, you, you react to yeah. your patient coming to you and say, I've got a problem, help yeah. doctor. And they often come late, of course. These people visit every household once a month and they are the, the entranceway, they can advise people, they can talk to them about you know, contraception or, or, or food or whatever, they can do those sort of messages stuff, they can you know, encourage them to, to get the checkup, they can, they can answer basic questions, they can, they can do all of that, um, and they can pick up other issues as well. And they are essentially, again, creating health, you know, creating the conditions for people to be healthy. Um, and I understand that it has been so successful, even in its first six months, that they've spread it to other areas in Westminster. And there's a lot of interest. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, you know, in a year's time, 18 months, two, two years' time, you didn't see quite a lot of community health workers mm -hmm. as part of the new approach to primary care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but a complete mindset change. Absolutely. Turning it upside down, yeah. you know, seeing things in a different way. And because people have come at this with, uh, I mean, my friend Francois Maswa, whom I mentioned, has this, you know, he, he says, Nigel, we don't have the resources, but these are our people, you know? What can we do? So we use what we've got. Yeah, yeah. With, with, with my skeptical mindset, yeah, please. The, the thought of having a, an army of community health workers go out into the borough of Westminster and actually being able to catch uh, a, a number of, of people and actually deliver health messages sounds like a really ambitious target. But I guess if this is coming from Brazil, which is already a very densely populated uh, country, and I'm assuming it was an urbanized environment. That no, 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 it, it was more rural. Actually. Oh, really? Oh, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. So that, that's it's, slightly... it's a mix because Brazil is actually huge and yeah. it's oh, a, yeah, yeah, a yeah, huge rural country. But, yeah. but it, it's, it's Sao Paulo mm. it, and it's the, the favelas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Favelas, yeah. favelas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. As well as everywhere. No, and, but it's not just health messages, it's actually supporting people because, uh -huh. you know, we can all see adverts, we can all get messages, but yeah. it's actually how do people internalize that? Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you as a doctor listen to doctors. We, we listen to the people who are like us. And if this is my neighbor, but 10 along, you know, they're the people who influence you about stuff like vaccines, aren't yeah. they? People like yeah. us, yeah. you know, yeah. your mates, you know, not even your family necessarily, yeah. you know, and, and, and so it taps into some much deeper things. Now it's being researched. I mean, actually in this book, um, I've got their job description. <laughs> I, described, <laughs> yeah. I described this story. So you can see it's, it's a bit more than just uh, that, but it, but it, but it is it it is that support um, sort of set of mechanisms. It's to some extent what you know, perhaps uh, in previous existences, uh, you know, other people in villages may have done in the UK. You know, I mean, and and maybe a role that the church has played, or mm. indeed uh, mosques or, or or synagogues or or, or, or temples or whatever. Mm. Um, you know, supporting people. Um, but it is this concept that we've, we've got to remember that health care is distinct. And actually, if health 
is about ultimately human flourishing, which it really is, you know, being all you can be, you know? Um, I, mean, I mean, you know, that, that feeling good about yourself is actually pretty good basis for moving on. And you know that food is kind of good for you and, you know, and uh, making food and, and all these sort of things. And actually, if you're also encouraging people to cook or whatever, or use fresh vegetables or teaching them how to use some of the stuff that's in the season or whatever, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah. making all these sort of links, mm -hmm. then you're starting to create a completely different environment. Really. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love that uh, idea of the spread of information and misinformation. There's actually a lot we can learn from the spread of misinformation during COVID, actually, yeah. because you're right. You're more likely and inclined to listen to people that you identify with, who yeah. are your peers yeah, uh, and who are in your network. And actually, if you can tap into that storytelling uh, mm. uh, with a positive uh, uh, slant, a, a nudge, if you like, um, that's something that it could be very powerful when it comes to spreading messages of improving one's locus of control over their own health, whether it be moving more, eating better, sleeping better, etc. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, it is all those things, you know? I mean, we know the evidence of exercise and food. We've heard that for years. Mm. But there's now terrific, genuine medical exercise, you know, I'm sorry, medical evidence. I mean, proper stuff that you cynical, skeptical, <laughs> appropriately clinicians <laughs> will understand about how relationships count. Mm. And they're actually having meaning and purpose in life. And if if you've got a if you've got a uh, you know if you're not social if you're if you're got a good social circle and, and and supportive relationships, you recover much quicker from illnesses on average, not always, and not all illnesses. Um, and you are more resilient um, in in the face of um, in the face of attacks, as it were, on your body. Um, so, you know, that there's now hard evidence around that. There's hard evidence around meaning and purpose in life mm, mm. being important. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in that, by the way. I'm and sure I, you are. I'm uh, sure the, you you are. know, the, the tenets of, uh, of health for, for me uh, was it's easier to look at nutritional medicine um, and, and the objective studies that we have and the observational yeah. work and all the rest of it. I think sense of purpose, happiness, uh, those perhaps less tangible uh, yeah. measures of, of well-being are just as important. And, and to, to go back a little bit, actually, um, uh, looking at uh, the examples that you, you mentioned in Southeast Asia um, or, or Asia, um, it seems like the distribution of wealth yeah. is an important factor when, uh, when wanting to, to elevate the, the health of, a, of an area or the, the nation or a community. This is something that we're, we're sort of struggling with at the moment in, in the UK and other westernized nations as well. The, the uh, inequality and in distribution of wealth and the cost of living crisis mm -hmm. and inflation, how that's harder hitting on poverty. From, from a more sort of objective standpoint, if we're looking to improve health on one side, would it stand to reason that we should really be looking at ways in which to redistribute wealth or even create like a, a blanket system, something like universal basic income, something that's been experimented with in, well, in a few I, of those I, I think there, there, uh, I think there is uh, a case for universal income. I read two studies yesterday which changed my mind a bit about this. Interesting. All of yesterday evening. Uh, yeah. Um, which was actually saying that the biggest correlation between health and money was not actually income, Though that was important, it was debt, mm. and it was whether you were in personal debt. Now, if you think about that, um, the anxiety that comes with that, the inability to do things, and all the rest of it, there's a logic to that, isn't there? That you can understand that. But if you think about that, you then have to think about well, actually, what are the policies I would try and introduce mm. to 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 tackle yeah. 
inequalities in health. And it was something like um, the income uh, affected inequalities by, uh, health by a factor of two, uh, and the um, the debt by a factor of four. Oh wow! Two together by a factor of six. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so, so yeah, yeah. you know, this is significant. But actually, you know, there's something to be said for focusing on debt. Debt. And yeah. in fact, I'm going to be raising this in the House of Lords now. Oh yeah, paper, yeah, yeah. You know, because I think actually. If we're going, we are in a crust of living crisis and so on. I mean, debt is going to be something that is going to be causing enormous stress and distress, uh, and which will therefore also be completely affecting the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the the inequalities, the health service and the health system. Yeah, absolutely. Talk, talk us through some other concepts that you talked about in your book, because I, I love the idea of community health advocates. I, th I totally agree with you. I think community primary health workers, actually. Community not, health not workers. Not just advocacy. Yes, see. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I totally agree that primary healthcare is going to change from one of a top-down approach that people traditionally think of. I go to the doctor when I have a cough or a cold or I'm, I'm worried or whatever, uh, to one where it's more about creating environments where health can flourish. This this conference is all about that. Dr. Michael Dixon has done a lot of work in this in this field. What are the other things that you think we should be really looking at when it comes to creating a salutogenic environment? Well, the, 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 there were four big issues that sort of fell out of it. One, one with the first one was this this point about joining up health, education, employment. You know, the big determinants, housing, and, and again, housing is a, is a, is a huge one. Um, a second one was. Um, and, and, and a big one was actually training people for the job and not just for the profession. Mm. And there is quite a mismatch. Um, there's something that tends to get called task sharing, uh, where in Africa, for example, people who job things that doctors might do, nurses might do. So for example, cataract surgery. Um, uh, most cataract surgeons in Africa are actually not even nurses, they're clinical officers. Um, but I do remember sitting in a, in a meeting in Addis, Addis Ababa, capital of Ethiopia, with a, with a bunch of people discussing, you know, the human resources crisis in Africa. This is about 10 years ago, actually. Um, and there were a bunch of, you know, white Americans and Brits. And, you know, and, and there were a few Africans in the room. And, and one of the young Americans, because you know, one of the sad things, and I go into this in the book, is you get these young people going and telling people what to do. Um, whereas they, people know what they need to do. They want some help to do it. But anyway, they, this was an example of that. It was, it was um, these people um, uh, saying, you know, what you need to do is task shifting. Uh, and then, you know, the Africans are terribly polite, but eventually there was a rumbling in the room. They said, look, you send us some doctors and nurses and we'll shift some tasks <laughs> yeah, to them. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, think about where you are, mate. We've yeah. been doing this stuff for years because yeah. actually if we haven't got doctors and nurses, um, professionals face up to what they can possibly do, mm. you know? Um, so there's a bit here. And, and in Africa, you get that. In, in, in Mozambique, um, you have a... Um, uh, uh, an approach to, uh, well, a, a young man then, Pascual Macumbi, uh, became Minister of Health just after the revolution when they'd thrown the Portuguese out. Mm -hmm. Same time as Brack was founded, actually, interestingly. Um, uh, and he found himself, he, he'd actually trained as a doctor and a nurse when he was in exile in Europe, fighting the cause, as it were. And he came back and he, so he was he's about 30. He became Minister of Health in Mozambique. Funny, he hadn't got any doctors because they were all Portuguese and they'd all gone home. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and what was he going to do, in, particularly in rural areas, for the biggest issue he saw, which was helping women deliver safely? 
and maternal wow. mortality was huge. Yeah. So he actually started, with the help of a Canadian actually, he started to train um, uh, nurses as, um, in obstetric operations. Um, and the Tecnico de Cirugia, forgive me anyone who's listening who speaks uh, Portuguese, <laughs> um, but technical, surgical technicians. Um, and uh, studies it published in the British Journal of Obzangaini show that over 20 years, they do them as well as clinicians, as, as physicians in the same environment, third of the cost, and the nurses stay, whereas wow. the doctors are more likely to emigrate. And it, this still goes on. So this is from 19, what did I say, 1974, wasn't it? Yeah, um, to now, this, this process. So the, te the surgical technicians are still doing um, obstetric procedures, wow. you know? That's Discrete number of obstetric procedures. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know as a doctor that you've got a panoply of skills. Yes. People can learn bits of them. Yes. It's you as doctors who've got the whole lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that there is some sort of, there's definitely something to be learned from specialization in, in, certain, in certain tasks. Uh, I have a colleague um, who's an orthopedic surgeon. He was burnt out by being uh, in London and going through the whole sort of specialist ladder, as I'm sure you're, you're very yeah. aware, you know, you have to do a certain number of audits and publications and you, you have clinics on Wednesdays and you yeah. know, all, all that kind of stuff. Years. <laughs> yeah, um, and he took some time out and uh, spent some time in Durban, South Africa mm. uh, and Malawi. Right, and oh, when he, right. Okay. When he came back, he was a changed person. He'd, it really ignited the passion for medicine that had sort of been beaten out of him by working in an environment where it's very algorithmic and guideline, dread, uh, guideline uh, driven. And I, I wonder if there is something in creating like an exchange program yeah. for NHS experienced doctors going to developing nations, providing uh, support and, and education training and it's, and it's certainly an exchange. It's not like a charity. It's a, you're going to be learning from all the different things that you talk about in your book. Yeah, absolutely. People are doing that actually. But so he was probably working with Chris Levy, okay. Chris Levy in yeah. in because uh, that Malawi program is quite an interesting one Brilliant. because they they invented orthopedic technicians, not right. totally unlike the obstetric technicians, ah, okay. and doing manipulations and so on. Yeah, uh, and and you know dealing with clubfoot with manipulation rather yeah. than surgery and, and yeah, so on. Yeah, Some yeah. really interesting stuff. Um, so it's a great story. Okay? Yeah, um, yeah, but. Uh, and, and people are doing that. And as when I was chief executive of the NHS, I started to encourage that. And there's an organisation called THET, Tropical Health Education Trust, which organises uh, uh, partnerships. So the nearest hospital here is St. Tommy's, uh, uh, and, and they've got links with a number of other hospitals where they send people each way, mm. and they learn together. Mm. So yeah. it's... Uh, and, but we need more of it. Yeah. You know, this is a global world. If you are a GP in East London, the world will walk in your day, yeah. in, in your in your surgery, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. So actually, I, I remember meeting a guy in Ethiopia who was an anaesthetist who said, in Nottingham, we had um, we had four cases of TB last year. Mm. So I thought I'd come to somewhere where they know about TB because it's obviously on the increase. Yeah. And you, you know? came to East London, did he? No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no he went to Addis. Yeah, yeah. Actually, but however, you'll, yeah, you'll yeah. do now. Yeah, you? yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Listen, this has been fascinating. I want to be respectful of your time because I know you're going to be on stage very yeah, soon. Go, um, yeah. But uh, I, I think your, your book's brilliant. And thank you just so much for uh, sharing your, your knowledge and your wisdom around this. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see 
what future clinicians uh, are going to be talking about in the next 10, 15 years. Yeah. And hopefully that stems from medical education as well. Yeah. Are you privy to some of these sort of um, the new ways in which we could be looking at training medics from an early stage to, to appreciate some of these concepts? Uh, well, I, I am, but I don't know if I'm you and I are talking about the same ones. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I am quite engaged. This, this, this group that I talked about earlier who, who were doing who produced the Lancet Commission, Professional Education for the 21st Century, mm -hmm. published in 2010, are doing a 10-year update. So I, uh, but I, I'm more, but I get a better understanding of it globally than necessarily. Yeah. I certainly don't know the, the English politics, as yeah. it were, yeah, of, yeah. of what's happening. Yeah. But I know, what, I know where some, some of the leading edge stuff globally is. Yeah. And, and there's some big and significant changes, including the really important one about getting the right, get recruiting from, the whole community, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and again, some I talk about some of the people who, who do that. The, the Latin American medical school, which deliberately goes out of its way to recruit people from indigenous mm -hmm. areas because they work back in indigenous areas and from poor communities and so on. Yeah. And we need to be thinking about some of that in our country too, absolutely. So that there is a reflection of the, so that people understand some of the cultural aspects because we haven't talked about culture, but there's big cultural aspects. Yeah. I don't need to tell you. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's big cultural aspects in all of this. Just one last thing, actually, on that note before before I let you uh, uh, go to the, the conference. Um, we have a large audience of a mixture of people. We have medics, medical students, yeah. nurses, uh, as well as people who don't come from a, a medical or scientific background, but are really passionate about health yeah. and well-being. What, what sort of things should uh, they be A, looking out for and B, potentially getting involved in as well uh, as we move into sort of a, 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 a more of a, a healthy living environment and, and some of the things yeah, that Yeah, a about. healthy society one. Yeah. Two, two, two quick answers to that. One is, it's, it's become even clearer to me that, and it should have been clearer earlier, that the health of an individual is intimately connected with the health of the community, with the health of wider society and with the health of the planet. Uh, you know, so actually, it's at any of those levels mm. that, that people may want to get involved. But, uh, w but my second point is we can't prescribe this top down. Yeah. The, the issue here is that if you're living in a particular community or you're aware of a particular set of issues, get stuck into those issues. Mm. Don't pick one from my guidelines or yeah. my toolkit or whatever. You go and get stuck in and learn by doing. Yeah. Because these people who are, who are doing this stuff, there isn't a model. There isn't, it's not like medical education, which yeah. I know is this very structured um, set of processes, actually, th these are messy problems mm -hmm. in messy in a different sense, as it were, yeah. you know, uh, they're wicked problems. So actually, and, and, and respect the community. The, the, the great thing from a health visitor in this country, uh, which is, you know, communities know how to cure themselves. And you could apply it in an African village. They know what the issues are, actually, but maybe they need your expertise, you know, Mr. Nurse or this doctor or, 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 or whoever you are, you know, um, to help them do it. Um, this is about turning your world upside down. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> it, it's not just you setting out to heal the world. Yeah. Actually, yeah. you heal the world by helping the world heal itself. Yeah. Well, you've certainly helped us uh, think a little bit more laterally. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it, Nigel. Good. Appreciate it. the conversation, Ruby. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. That was wonderful.
I really hope you enjoyed listening to this week's podcast. Remember, you can also watch the podcast now on the YouTube channel at thedoctorskitchen.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter for free, eat, listen, read every single week, send you a recipe and something to help you live a healthier, happier day and week and month, hopefully. I will see you here next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.